Hello, everyone. My name is Jimena Dusan Aya Pearson, and you are listening to Root Stories of the Soul, Soulful Talks with Jimena. Now, for decades, I have had a big interest and passion for stories of our roots, our ancestors, our genius loci or spirit of place, and how all these are interwoven through our souls, and or like James Hillman says, soul making. Now, for the past few years, I have been studying uh, archetypal and Jungian studies uh, with an emphasis in depth psychology. And each week, I will be bringing to you stories from people around the world about what makes the soul a place and what gives a place its soul. And we will be exploring different elements about the uh, about the places that we uh, came from and the places that we live in. So this is really a space for people um, where they can tell their stories about their origins, about their ancestors, about their um, place they call home, and also how we can all invite the soul of the world back into our lives. I cannot wait. I am so excited to bring you so much more. Uh, Deborah. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm so happy that you're that you're joining me here today for um, my podcast, Root Stories of the Soul. Yeah. So Thank I'm you excited. Yes, yeah, so I'm excited to get into today's topic. And um, but before we do, um, I just want to welcome all our listeners to uh, episode seven of Root Stories of the Soul. Um, and today's uh, topic is uh, stories of my inner landscape. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to give a brief introduction, of course, um, um, to our listeners. And so my friend Deborah Goldman, she has been pra- she has been a practicing visual artist for over 35 years, uh, making her home in Iowa, New York, Colorado. For the, and for the past 18 years in Washington State. And she has been deeply informed by her relationship to place and to the symbolic language that she uses in her creative work. She has raised two children on a small organic farm in Whatcom County and has taught in universities in three different regions of the country. And 30. 30 years after completing her MFA from Pratt Institute, she returned to graduate school to immerse herself in the vast terrain of depth psychology. It was during this intensive study that the roots of her earliest influences became conscious to her. The evolution of her inner landscape is ongoing and has been richly informed by all these experiences. She continues to explore how to engage in the story of these times that we are living. So, um, Deborah, again, welcome. And um, <coughs> you and I met about four years ago when mm-hmm. we were both enrolled at Pacifica Graduate Institute. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's just a pleasure to have you. Um, how are you doing? Good. Thanks, Jimena. Yeah, good. I'm glad to be here and I'm doing well today. 
that's what that's good to hear. So there's quite a lot of kind of questions I want to dig into, but first and foremost, I want to ask you, um, I know you said that you've been an artist for over 35 years, but what Mm -hmm. got you into being an artist? Like what, what prompted you? Um, Probably it was, again, this was another thing that at the time was not conscious, but probably when I was a child, I, um, well, I always, fundamentally, I always just like to draw. That was really something that I just did as a child. And it was a way for me to probably express things that I didn't understand. And um, as I got older, I realized that I was, uh, it became a way for me to express not only things I didn't understand, but to express things that were inner experiences rather than the outer experiences I was seeing in the world. I, I had this need to sort of tap into something that, that didn't have language, that only could be um, understood through image rather than words. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And- some of these images, do you recall if they were inspired by by nature and place or how, how was that, you know, at the beginning for you? Yeah, I think when it started to when it started to to when I feel like I started to create kind of my own language. I mean, I went to college um, a long time ago and in college I was an art major, but I was and I was a photography major. So I was really finding things in the outside world to take photographs of, which is basically usually how you start in photography. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited by that because I was like isolating images from the world. And, And I was drawn to all kinds of things like any beginning photographer usually is to just find out about black and white photography and light and shadow. And, Mm -hmm. um, but then, it was actually when I moved to uh, New York City for graduate school. Um, that I started to, I was really dissatisfied going out and making photographs of things I was seeing in in the outer world. So I started creating these images um, inside, like, I guess you call them still lives. But I found what I kept being drawn to were creating these uh, kind of inner landscapes. So they had this horizon line, like the horizon line became really important in whatever I was seeking in the outer world or in these interior still life photographs that I was re-photographing. Hmm. And, um, and then I, that's probably when I first became conscious of how since I'd grown up in the Midwest and wasn't conscious of thinking about how that landscape was in, informing me. But once I left that landscape and went and lived in New York City, which of course horizon is not usually what you think about when you think about New York City because everything's it's much more crowded and it's you know buildings are tall and there's not a sense of horizon there so I realized I was desperately seeking that and missing that and that that the idea of that what happened at the horizon and where the horizon and the land meet whether that's um in landscape in the midwest or whether that's in uh an ocean and yeah. the sky or all of that was really essential for my own kind of well-being. Okay, Deborah, you, you, you winked. I know. I don't know what happened there. I think somebody tried to call me and it, it broke the connection. 
and, and they bumped you. Okay. I know, and it's I don't okay. know when I, I was talking on and on and on, so I'm not sure what I was saying when I... So we were talking about the horizon and how that started kind of maybe uh, presenting itself or maybe you, you know, you kind of started to feel like you were missing that the horizon line or that horizon, that inner yeah. landscape that started showing up, I guess, in your, in your work. Yeah, I started seeking it and, and recreating it. And then I, and that made me think about how much, are you still, wow, why do I keep losing it? Uh, you're still there. Oh, okay, good. Okay, sorry. Um, my phone just keeps looking like it's shutting off or something. Um, yeah, so I that's when I started to become really aware that how much land and place was informing not just the creative work I was doing, but my psyche. Like there were certain things I and it's and ever since then I've been highly aware of how that's informed all of my work is the landscape that I'm living in and um, which has changed. I've lived in four different, very different regions. And, um, but that ever presence horizon has been pretty present always. And it's, and I, now that I have this that psychological language, I think of that as this, um, these border borderlands kind of where um, literally where earth and sky meet, but also in the psyche where things come together where there are these splits or where things, um, the potential for things to heal. Okay. All right. So I, so I'm, I'm curious and maybe our listeners might be curious too. Um, if you can go into a little bit more about what inner landscape means to you and maybe, you know, maybe uh -huh. others can also relate to that as well. Uh-huh. Um, when I say inner landscape, I guess it means um, my inner land or any, well, I don't, won't speak for anybody else, but my inner landscape is, um, which I think continues to evolve, mm -hmm. um, is where I feel like I'm, I have a sensitivity to things that cannot be seen. Okay. Things that can only be in the imaginal. Okay. In imaginal space, and um, and I think my work is always trying to create an image that is a representation of that imaginal space. Okay. And and that that in fact is the inner my inner landscape. Okay. Um, yeah. So Which yeah, so I think in the, in that sense we all I think in some sense have that inner Absolutely. landscape. Yeah. That. Yeah that expresses itself through different means. Right. Um, and in your case, it's through your art. Through visual um, art, yeah. Yeah, through your visual art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, that is wonderful. And so you did touch a little bit on, um, you know, uh, going into studying depth psychology. Mm -hmm. And many maybe people don't know but depth psychology you know studies the unconscious and mm -hmm. so how for you how do you feel like studying depth psychology deepened your connection um, to your art practice yeah I think um well I realized and I I became even more aware of it when I was studying depth psychology that it actually had always been informing um 
the unconscious had always been informing my creative practice and I just didn't know what it was. Like, I didn't know what to call that. I didn't know there was actually a mode of study that related to that. I mean, I'd been introduced to Carl Jung's, the only Carl Jung that I'd really knew about was his early book called Man and His Symbols. Mm-hmm. And, and that was something that had been given to me probably in college, perhaps. And I was definitely curious about it and and uh, often looked at it. But again, I wasn't thinking in a conscious way of how it was relating to the images I was making. But um, years later, then when I found out about Pacifica and about this program, I went back and looked at kind of the trajectory of my work and realized that so much of these interior images I was creating, these created landscapes that weren't in fact landscapes at all, they were still lifes um, of found materials of a lot of rocks and bowls and um, is had highly, was highly symbolic language, um, um, archetypal language, you know, that didn't just reference the literal nature of the cell of itself, but reference something beyond it, which is like what I just, how I described, um, an inner landscape, referencing things that can't be seen. And one of the my favorite definitions of depth depth psychology is um, its name and the name depth psychology implies or draws one beneath the surface of thought, of words, and of actions, instead to the inclinations and impulses of the soul in wow. which these elements are actually rooted. Um, I love that definition because it, it, and that really meets me where I feel like depth psychology was just this, gave me a language to think about the things I'd already been doing. And it's just, but they were coming to consciousness when I started that program. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a wonderful way of, I think, describing it. Um, So, you know, we're talking about kind of, stories you know and and you know, the title of my podcast is of course root stories of the soul mm-hmm. so for you the these stories of your inner landscape like you mentioned earlier they have it continues to to change mm-hmm. um you know you've lived in so many different parts of the country which could be described as you know urban rural you know landscapes mm-hmm. um how has your artwork um, been, I guess, not maybe not impacted, but how has it changed throughout those, you know, throughout these places? How mm-hmm. have they been reflected, I guess, in your artwork? Mm-hmm. Um, well, probably when I, like when I lived in New York City, which I lived there for about five years before moving north of the city, um, all of my work was no longer outside. It was all inside, which is probably my metaphor for the interior inner landscape. But mm-hmm. it li- was literally inside where I was only, I no longer went out on the street or in the landscape to photograph at all. I only photographed things that I was creating mm-hmm. in small still lifes. And they looked much larger in the photographs, but they also, um, be- and the sense of scale was hard to know, understand in the photographs. It's also when I started to um, get less interested in the photograph for the photographic nature 
yeah. of the material and I started to manipulate the fo photograph and draw and paint on the photograph. And that's probably, that all happened in that particular environment and the, probably the particularity of living in a very urban environment as well as an environment where there was a lot of stimulation and a lot of outside references to a lot of other creative work because okay. of New York City. So I think that was highly influential. And then I left there. When I left the state of New York, I moved to Colorado. Okay. Completely different landscape. Um, and again, these are not things I was conscious of, right? So that, yeah. that's really important. It was This was all happening, which is why I so trust um, the unconscious. I mean, it's, yeah. it's like now that I have more of a language for it and also can it's the beauty of getting older, actually, because yeah. you can look back and say, oh, well, this really made sense before that. And um, in Colorado, I went back. I stopped doing the in inner interior work and I went back out into the landscape, which was kind of fascinating to have done that. But I wasn't looking at like what you might imagine a photographer in Colorado might do is, um, you know, the mountain. That's what we, what do we think of in Colorado. We think of mountainous Mountain. region yep <clears throat> but i didn't do that at all i ended up going to the eastern part of the state and and photographing rivers okay and, um and the river and almost all of those photographs of the rivers had a really strong horizon line in them so i was still being drawn back to that original landscape to the landscape of you know the long narrow prairie kind of landscape and Again, it was very innate. It was very, I mean, the, the river itself the, it was more metaphorical than literal. It was more the metaphor of what does the river represent yeah. um, as metaphor. And, um, and I started to, at that point in the creative work, I started to write on the photographs. So then language became a part of it and, and there became this element of story attached to the photographs, which also were manipulated by ink and paint and text and so that's sort of how that evolution happened and then when I moved from Colorado to the west coast um, I started I've started to do even more well I started to do a lot more painting and and, and drawing and the photograph completely fell away for a very long time probably 20 years I didn't even use a camera wow. and um and I was making uh, even more relying on symbol in the drawings or the paintings, symbolic references to kind of archetypal imagery, archetypal and alchemical kinds of imagery. And then I started working with the idea of alchemy through um, materials that I was using. So I was in, although photography is highly alchemical for sure, the dark yeah. process, um, but I started to actually make my own paint with um, mineral pigments and oil and um, create my own charcoal with is actually um, burning sticks in tin cans in fire. And so the yeah, chemical and all of this was starting to happen prior to having any real understanding of depth psychology. So, <clears throat> um, so it was all happening. And I think often that's true that all these elements are so alive in us that we don't bring conscious necessarily bring consciousness to it yeah and um does that answer your question or was yeah that no it it, it does and and it 
brings up probably a, a few more questions okay, as you good. saying that. Um, because one of my questions was going to be how how have you brought nature into your artwork, uh, which you touch mm -hmm. upon that you've used natural elements, mm -hmm. you know, as actual tools or, you know, to paint. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I kind of want to go back a little bit to photography. Mm -hmm. I, I took photography in college mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. your introduction to, to photography. And back then, you still used the old-fashioned yeah. burning and uh, uh, what's the other one? You burn. Dodging. Dodging, yeah. Yeah. So with the passage of time, of course, mm -hmm. where um, technology has advanced so much mm -hmm. that n most of photography nowadays, I feel like it's digitally done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you find that that, that technology and that and the use of digital photography does has that kind of disconnected us or uprooted us from from you know the natural way of doing photography oh yeah i think so i mean i think it's one of the reasons i actually um although i think there's certainly value to it for sure and to be honest, I have not touched my cameras for so many years, and the only camera I use is on my phone. Yeah. So, um, because it's just so easy, and I think there's something really wonderful about that, and I also think there's something lost in that because there's very little discernment now in what we make photographs of because it's so easy to make thousands of photographs, and um, so the kind of editing process is much different than it was when you photographed a roll of film or even a sheet of film, I worked with a large format camera for a long time where it was single sheets of film. Yeah. And, and um, so I, I think there's a lot that's been lost. And I also, that's one of the reasons I stopped teaching at university in photography, because it's when we started transferring all the dark rooms to digital labs. And I just wasn't very interested. Well, I wasn't at all interested in, um, working creatively like that or really in teaching it because I was really interested in the earlier processes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, talking to young people today who I still think many young people would be really fascinated by the darkroom process. Um, it's not there a reference point for them. So that may not feel like a loss. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but certainly that's, you know, that happens for those of us who had the benefit of taking a beginning photography class and learning the darkroom. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, and then something I think that you and both you, you and I both discovered when we were in uh, studying that psychology is, you know, you touch on this, it's alchemy mm -hmm. and how alchemists, you know, there's, there's a transformation that happens, you know, mm -hmm. when you're doing alchemical, you know, when there's something changes alchemically but it's mm -hmm. not just uh it's not changing it's not just changing the material that you're working with but it's there's also a transformation that happens inner you know yeah uh -huh. um, can you kind of um, give us a glimpse of how that that process is for you when you're doing your artwork uh-huh um yeah, let me think how to answer that question. I know exactly what you're talking about because there is an inner transformation, I think, of the self 
through creative practice, but I think it's very, it's very gradual. Like I don't, like my experience anyway has been that it's, it's so gradual. You can't see that kind of, that kind of transformation happens over years mm -hmm. for me. Um, uh, and this is where the, having a relationship to the unconscious can make you self-conscious yeah you know what i mean where yeah. you you can get so hyper aware that there's something happening below the surface that it can kind of be a kind of paralysis <laughs> mm -hmm. for you to move forward in the creative work i have to constantly be finding ways to quiet that voice inside because it can be just as loud as, as you know as any kind of distraction right um yeah so how is it how does it uh how do i feel like it's trans the alchemical interior process um so let me maybe um yeah reframe that maybe to yeah prompt maybe has when i think of alchemy i think of colors you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. um do you do you do you feel like the color the scheme of colors mm -hmm. has changed through the years? Yeah. Do you know, do you find certain colors kind of coming in and out of your mm -hmm. artwork or maybe photography as and mm -hmm. has that and has that change of colors has that been informed by the place that you that you've lived at? I don't know if it's too much. Yeah. No, no, I, yeah, I can, yeah. Um, yeah, so I started out in photography and was never interested in color photography. I always was a black and white photographer. And then at a certain point, though, I think it was, a, um, I did a fair amount of work that set up still life work that also was highly kind of ritualized, like it was almost altars. Like they, mm -hmm. I had a series of pieces called altar pieces. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing that, so I was bringing in a lot of, um, you know, this was like 35 years ago, like feathers and bones and bowls and rocks and making these altar pieces that became landscape like. Then, then I felt like the black and the harshness of the black and white wasn't really appropriate. So I started to tone my photographs and so that this sort of sepia brown ochre tone. Mm -hmm. became um, something I worked with for many, many years. So even though I wasn't yet a painter, I was starting to shift the color because I think I was trying to be in more relationship with a more natural um, palette, a palette from nature. Yeah. And um, so that is true. That definitely happened. And then that continued for many, many years, even through the, the river work. All of that work still had that. It was a different brown, but it was still trying to bring in the sense of soil mm -hmm. earth-based there's this earth earthiness to it and that has and then I did and then I you know for many years my work was like you know what you could identify it because of this subtlety of the tonality of the work and okay then, but then all of a sudden um, when I started painting and I even my paintings in the beginning were had this very subtle tonality to it and then I had this period of about five years where the paintings, um, part of it was just experimenting with a new material and mm -hmm. seeing like being kind of excited by this idea of color. 
but still, um, and so I started working with really bold, rich colors, but they were still very earth-based. Uh, there was an earth-based palette to it. <clears throat> and then I think um, after that, I started being more interested in, rather than just these paints, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that came out of tubes um, that were artificially made, basically, yeah. acrylic. Um, I started wanting to have not only a palette that was more related to the natural world, but a palette that was actually made by the natural world. And that's why I started actually foraging for pigments that you found in, in the mineral world, in rocks and clay, and, and then taking those materials and making paint from them. So it's a limited palette in the sense that it doesn't have the range of a full paint set, but it feels more more intentionally connected to the natural world. So okay. I feel like I just, almost like a spiral, like I keep honing in a little bit closer to um, nature having this more direct influence on the work. Um, yeah. 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 So being that, you know, of course, nature has influenced your artwork, but how do you feel like you, that we as humans and you and your artwork, how do you think we impact the world that we live in and the places that we live in? Like what's our mm -hmm. impact on the world and through, and through your own experience? Well, a lot of it's pretty negative, <laughs> our <laughs> impact on the world. <laughs> Quite obviously and honestly. Um, um, let's see, what is my, you know, and I, it's obvious why I say that because we're, we're certainly finding that our impact from our, uh, just the way we live our lives um, has having this enormous impact on the planet and, and, it, and the planet's starting to show us and speak back yeah. in big and profound ways. And um, I do find, I've, I've experienced this kind of conundrum most of my life. Um, I grew up in a family where there were not any other artists. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I grew up in a family of people who are all in like human services of some kind. Okay. And um, so I actually grew up feeling like art making was a selfish practice. Hmm. And I had to really, um, that it didn't, it didn't uh, value human life. It didn't benefit human lives. It didn't, I mean, because it, again, coming from a family where it was appreciated, but it really wasn't, but it really it was, there wasn't any kind of sophisticated relationship to fine art in my, in the, my family of origin. So I mostly felt guilty um, about choosing this path that felt like it was sort of a personal self-expression and did it have value in the larger questions of the time. Hmm. And um, I've, I've made peace with that for the most part, <laughs> but I still think there's a part of me because I, I can get caught up in, well, what about the materials that you use or the, you know, and I did feel pretty good about the fact that I stopped doing photography, even though I missed it because I felt like I was creating a lot of waste that was pretty toxic waste, which was yeah. dark, dark room waste. So that felt good to me to, to say goodbye to that. 
yeah. and to work with materials that had a, a, a smaller impact directly, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. waste-wise. Waste um, but I really do believe that um, that as creative people, even if the creative end result is not seen by the larger world, which often it's not, mm -hmm. um, I think there is something to be said by the intention set in the work that you're doing and the work that you're creating. Not just the in this intention set, but the outcome of whatever that intention was. Um, that there is value in being of benefit to the um, times we're living in and to, to what's wrong in the world and what we're trying to make right in our, in our human and other than human relationships. I yeah. feel like the impulse of that is actually has value. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's still, it's still uh, you know, it's not um, boots on the ground kind of activism. Although I do do some of that. I, okay. I am very involved in a, in a forest legacy group where we're, we're trying to protect um, old growth and legacy forests, which is any forest over 100 years old. Um, from being logged um, because there's less and less and less of those and we just have a lot of tree plantations now. Um, so I found that I, I needed to kind of, I needed to have some of that balance where I felt like I was doing direct activism as well as indirect kinds of activism through the work that I'm creating. Okay. Okay. So yeah. with, um, so when we're involved you know, in activism, things are being changed or we want to create a change, right? Or, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. you've used the word alteration or alter a lot, like you've altered, alter. your, uh -huh. you've altered your photographs. Oh, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I know that you've also done some work with, uh, with books. Um, oh, yeah. Altered I wanna books. Kind of, yeah, altered books, which I want to get a little bit into. Uh -huh. So do you, like, where, where do you find that kind of that need for out for alteration or for that need oh. to change things how is that part of your inner landscape like where do you feel that mm, that's such a good question Hanana. i'm gonna really get i'm gonna try and answer it but i'm also gonna really think about that question <laughs> um beyond this conversation um yeah, the need to alter things. Um, that's such a good question. So I think that probably is um, very primordial. And um, I think it comes from, as a very young child, I had this uh, experience when I was nine years. I remember it being nine years old only because I don't have a lot of memory as a child, but I remembered this in particular because we just moved into a new house my family had and it was the first time i had my own bedroom mm -hmm. and in that bedroom there was a closet and um it was a very narrow long closet with a sliding door and i in that closet my memory and I, I and my sisters tell me this never happened but i think they're wrong because this, i have such distinct memories of it and I also think if it didn't actually literally happen, that doesn't even matter because this is what was happening in my mind, um, that I created this private club in my closet. <laughs> and I called the club the Rotunda Club. <laughs> now, I don't know where, why I came up with that word at nine years old, 
I have some theories about it, but I remember specifically how I would spell the name Rotunda, and it was as you would see it in a dictionary. So it was R O space U. It was the syllables of yeah. the word. Yeah. And um, I used to spend time in that closet only by myself. It was a private club, and I. It was a dark closet. There wasn't a light in the closet, hmm. and I would take all my drawing things in there with me and my favorite books which I couldn't see, of course, because it was dark. <laughs> and I'd close the door and I'd lay on the floor and I'd look up into the sky, which now that I know of the word rotunda, I think, oh, rotunda is like a dome-shaped yeah. room. And yeah. I think, so even though in my child's mind, I, I'm sure I wasn't making this connection, but that's a highly symbolic, like an altar, like a okay. sacred space. Okay. Sacred space. I think it came, it started way back then that I was really curious about was up in that dark, domed, sacred space that I didn't, I, I didn't understand and was invisible. It was what was in this invisible. Wow. So I think the sense of altar came from wanting to find sacred space and um, probably altering something about my interior world, which was probably troubled. You know, yeah. I think that I think part of my going into the closet was I was probably um, I, I had a pretty happy childhood, honestly. But there were some secrets in the family, you know, and yeah. And even though if you, children don't know the secret, they know their secrets. You know, yeah. there's something yeah. I don't understand that's going on in, in my family life. And which I much later I figured out what those were. But I think as a child, I was so I was probably trying to alter or make sense of something. So, so in, a, in, a, in a way, maybe this and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Maybe this closet kind of became your own kind of dark room where. Mm -hmm. you're, yeah, yeah, that too. Where you're changing things, you know, and that's what happens, of course in photography, in, in yeah. the dark room, it happens. Of course, I think when you're doing art, you know, yeah. a constant, um, I don't know, play with, um, with, you know, with images or, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's true with the, with the photograph. I didn't really get interested in photography until I found ways that I could alter the original negative. Yeah, yeah and or the print like I never was interested in the straight image you know I, I started altering things yeah immediately so that's is really you're right and I'd never made even made that connection and because I loved being in the dark room that was like my favorite thing about photography it wasn't taking the photographs it was being in the dark room and yeah that probably did start back in that dark closet yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you know going back to our to our topic and our title of this podcast you know we've been calling it stories of my inner landscape which I feel like you know stories you know people think of stories you know as the written, written stories you know mm -hmm. uh, yeah. words as an image and but we've also been talking about the the visual the visual image image mm -hmm. you know that can also tell a story mm -hmm. um, so tell me your your how you found altered books and how you uh -huh. how you've been able I think to bring in both both worlds you know both the written and the visual yeah um 
So the first altered book that I made, I probably had seen altered books, altered books. Um, I mean, people have been altering books for probably as long as books have been around. Um, mm -hmm. Not calling them that and not thinking them as an, uh, particularly as an artistic statement. But um, then there's also been in contemporary times, there's been there are many artists who've worked with books and, and changed the nature of the book. Mm -hmm. So I certainly didn't originate that. But at some there was a point of time when I was raising my children that I wasn't making. A, I didn't have time to really make a lot of. I didn't have time to be in my studio and have the kind of the concentration that it took and this the psychic space to do the kind of work that I'd done in the past before I had children. And there was a lot of frustration in that. And so I needed to make and I was trying to kind of. I had this lag of time where I really didn't make many things. I didn't make a lot of objects and um, or visual pieces. And once I started to realize how big of a, of a gap that was for me emotionally and psychically that I really needed to get back into a pra into more of a regular practice with making things because it truly was like a, it was really a um, psychologically necessary for me to be making things. Like it was a kind of uh, psychological, even if it wasn't uh, conscious, it helped me a lot yeah. so, with the healing practice. So, <clears throat> so the way for me to kind of return to making things, and I've always loved books and I'm a big reader and is I thought, well, I felt, I felt pretty uptight kind of, I didn't want to return to what I had been doing and I didn't know where I was going to go in the future. So I, I just had this, I, and I was going through a lot of um, kind of tricky things in my personal life. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to, take a, a book that I I have reverence for the book as an object itself but I make peace with that by saying well most books are made in multiples you know most books are published in more mm -hmm. than one book. so I could take the one book and I could I could alter it by um, bringing in other other images drawing in the pages or cutting out pages or adding collaging within the pages mm -hmm. um, to create uh, a new, either a new language or a new object that was now not about what the original intention of the book was, although that might get really used. And the yeah. first author book I made, I really utilized some of the text and some of the images that were actually in the original book, um, which was actually um, a children's book. It was the first book I altered. <laughs> and um, it helped me to sort of feel less uh, precious about the final object because it, it wasn't an object I had originally made. And I was using a lot of collage of other people's images and words. And so it, it helped me to kind of break back into my world of, of image making <laughs> and, and also had this big awareness of how images had their own language, you know, and um, what were the images throughout my life that had really informed me? What were the symbols that kept coming back again and again and again? Yeah. And, and that's where I started to work that out was in these altered books. Okay. Okay. Now you meant, you mentioned a word that kind of popped out re, 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 um, reverence or like, a, you know, a book that you're uh -huh. 
that you that you have high regard for or uh-huh. and in in our conversation so far I, I feel like there's that you have kind of this sacred relationship to your artwork mm-hmm. to to your photography to to place mm-hmm. and do you think that maybe your artwork and your art practice is rooted on the sacred on sacred elements of mm-hmm. of the places that you've that you've lived at yeah i think um yes i think no matter what i'm working <laughs> i'm sorry man same thing happens if somebody calls in that's probably why this is a not a not a great way to do it. Somebody it's calls okay. in, it it's, breaks it up. It's okay. We can finish through, and you know we can yeah to maybe wrap it up. But um, okay. but we're talking about the the sacred element. Oh yeah, in your in your artwork and your yeah. art practice. Yeah, um, definitely. I guess a, a good example of that is um. During the pandemic, I lived in um, on an island that was off the coast of Washington State for a year. Um, not really because of the pandemic, but it just turned out that, that this cottage became available for me to live in. And um, I took that opportunity, and it was the last year of my uh, work at Pacifica. So it was when I was going to create my thesis work, and um, or one aspect, in, anyway, of it. And... Uh, I had no idea when I moved there really what kind of uh, creative work I was going to do while I was there. I just knew I was going to be doing Pacifica graduate work. And, <clears throat> but I came to realize that there were two things that were happening for me on the island, aside from doing all the work for Pacifica, was I was doing an enormous amount of walking, which we haven't even talked about walking yet, but walking is like a really big uh, theme in my life as well as uh, in my relationship to place mm-hmm. and um, and has been since I was young also and continued to be no matter where it was I, I lived um, this need to be in relationship to place through walking okay and so I did that so for that year I lived there I was really traversing the island like there were many hikes and then I was hiking you know I was kind of through hiking on roads to hikes to roads to um, just trying to cover as much of the island as I could so that I could do a lot of walking but also understand the nature of being on an island which Mm -hmm. I which I had lived on an island once before but I'd never um, had the opportunity to do this much walking and um, in doing that I was also making photographs again which was not with a camera with my phone but it was the first time I started thinking these photographs actually are pretty interesting and they're very much about this place and they're very specific to when you live on a landmass that is surrounded by water. Yeah. And um, I was really curious about that. And I've always been really drawn to, it's kind of a romantic vision, but there's something other than the romantic from why I'm drawn to islands. But um So I was making these photographs and then I started making these drawings that at first I didn't realize that they also were so much about living on a landmass that's surrounded by water because they were these very large 
charcoal drawings of circles. Okay, and, I remember. Yeah, and um, those became later, as I continue to make them, what I called island bodies. So they felt like they were these, um, and they were highly symbolic and kind of ritualistic. Mm -hmm. And the walking was kind of ritualized. So I guess what I'm bringing together is yes, the element of the sacred, the element of place, and how that was revealed then in the kinds of images that I was creating both with, with my phone, a, a camera, and both through the hand. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, that, so you so you you almost kind of circle back to that image of the rotunda that you spoke yeah. of when you were like that little girl yeah. in the in the closet. Yeah, looking up at the dome shaped. Yeah. Feeling. Yeah, very much so. This this darkened circle. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I could go on with this conversation and even when you mentioned uh, walking you know I, I do have hopefully a guest in the upcoming weeks where we're going to mm -hmm. touch on uh inviting nature you know through um you know walking um mm -hmm. okay so, yeah so that's definitely something that i want to you know bring up in in my future um episode. yeah there's, there's such a history of um uh visual artists and and writers and poets who have this very strong relationship to walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. De definitely. So, you know, this has been such enlightening conversation, Deborah, and I'm so happy that you, you know, that you've, um, you know, despite of the technology hiccups, you know, that have mm -hmm. altered our recording but you know that yeah. happens <laughs> we needed to do uh, some altering <laughs> yeah exactly um so you know nature again you know something deeply that's embedded in your art pieces obviously mm -hmm. and i even have one of your beautiful paintings you know on my um right above my night table and oh, nice. um so just like you have kind of painted just like how, you know, you've kind of have this image or this external landscape, right, that you work with. Uh -huh. How do you feel that nature, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and when I talk about nature, not just a, a place, but nature as maybe even as a person or like, you know, something more personal. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like nature has painted its landscape in your inner voice and soul? Just mm -hmm. kind of as a... Mm -hmm that we can end with? Uh-huh. Um, well, I think, I've, uh, I think it has, I think it's, it's so um, intimately clear to me that we are deeply interconnected to the natural world, that we, we are not separate from it. And mm -hmm. um, I think most recently, it's been in my relationship to, and seeing the, the, interconnected relationships between trees and how the micro mycorrhizal system beneath trees and the, the capacity for communication between um, plants, um, not just animals, but the plant world, um, and that we are tied into that web as well. And uh, that's deeply humbling to me as well as um, 
very much informing like the work I'm working on right now are these large charcoal drawings again and back to charcoal mm -hmm. uh, looking up into tree canopies um, and how uh, thinking about of it symbolically because we're losing our tree canopies as we deforest yeah. the world and um, it's so essential that that's maintained in some way because it, in fact, it does create the, the shelter and the protection and the interdependent interconnectedness of and the capacity for us to continue to have human life on this um, planet because the planet will go on far longer than. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but when I just said that, I thought, oh, Jimenez next going to say, oh, so you're looking up into the tree canopy. Yes. You're looking up into the rotunda. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it, it's all going back to that moment. Right. When you were yeah. that little girl yeah. sitting in that dark <laughs> right. room, in that dark closet. Yep. Yep. Wow. So right. It's I true. hadn't even thought of that. And it's because I came on your podcast and had this conversation. <laughs> yep. Ah, the things that we discover, you know. Yeah. yeah. Within our, the stories that, that, um, that, that, that inform you know your our lives and, and and we start seeing those connections you know um, exactly so, so important it's yeah. so inspiring isn't it yeah truly yeah is. yeah so deborah before we kind of end i do tell our listeners how you know how they can find you what kind okay. of work you're currently doing and i know you have you know your own kind of workshops that you offer mm -hmm. so yeah yeah, um, probably the best way um, to see my work is it's not completely up to date, but is my website, which is Deborah Goldman Studio dot com. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I do teach a series of workshops on altered books. It's called Altered um, Book, Altered Self. And um, I teach maybe three or four uh, six week workshops a year. I the last one I taught was in the spring, and now I'm not going to be teaching any workshops probably till after January 2024 because I'm going to go uh, do a, a vision quest okay. in the fall um, okay. in, in late September into October. And so a lot of my kind of, um, which I'm sure is going to, you know, is a strong relationship to place. It's going to be the desert too, which is not a place I've spent a lot of time. It's going to be in the Sonoran Desert. Wow. And... Um, I'm sure it's going to be informing. Yes, it's going uh, to be changing or continuously, yeah. you know, reinventing your inner landscape once. More. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm both have some nervousness about it as well as um, feel like it's sort of another a new chapter in the work I'm doing. So I decided to just I'm doing a lot of preparation for that and then want to be open to integrating that when I return. So I've decided not to teach again until the till January. So my, okay. I have a second website for those courses, which people could look at, but again, it just says stay tuned um, because I don't have one listed yet, but it's called story art transformation and transformation. Okay. Wonderful. Well, all these links, I will make sure that they okay. are posted, um, you know, for people to be able to find them. And, great. um, and, you know, once again, it's been such a great pleasure having you, um, and, um, 
and I do want to thank our listeners for tuning in and and yeah, until until they until next time. Okay. Thank you Thanks. so much, Amanda. This Thanks is really for good too. for me too. Okay. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. Well, we have reached the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this podcast and today's episode, be sure to share and subscribe and rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. I am your host, Jimena Dusan Aya Pearson. And again, you've been listening to Root Stories of the Soul. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we will be continuing to talk about the soul of place. Without viewers and listeners like you, this would not be possible. So thank you again for joining me today. Until next time, have a wonderful day.